A young perspective on hot button issues around the world. This is the Hub. Hello and welcome to the Hub on CGTN and Mangguan in Beijing. China has been taking a supportive role over the years, working with the African Union in promoting economic cooperation and infrastructure development. The former deputy chairperson of the African Union Commission, Aristas Moancha, has visited China on multiple occasions. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined in Nairobi, Kenya, by Mr. Moancha for his insights on the BRICS summits and multilateral relationships between China and Africa. Vice Chairman Moancha, welcome back to the Hub on CGTN. I want to start by asking you about China-Africa relations. China has maintained its position as Africa's largest trading partner for 14 consecutive years, even. Amid the pandemic in 2022, the trade volume between China and Africa reached 282 billion U.S. dollars. That is, of course, a 11 percent increase year on year. What is your reading of the current momentum in China-Africa economic relations? The relationship between Africa and China, of course, dates back to many decades, even not centuries. But of course, since the year 2000, when the FOCAC, the Forum for Africa-China cooperation started, that relationship has strengthened because it brings together the, the leaders of Africa plus the president of China, and that helps in cementing relationship. And of course, the business community has always taken advantage of that closeness at the leadership level to undertake business. Yes, indeed, if you look at that trade, it is also accompanied by many other things that uh, go with it, uh, cooperation that also stretches into other areas of cooperation, like uh, in the area of uh, development cooperation, people-to-people -people cooperation, and as well as, of course, uh, social sectors, including support for Africa in some of the areas, like in the area of peace and security. So it is not just a one-faceted kind of cooperation, it is multifaceted and it has grown out of huge you know, investment, social and political and economic that has taken place over the years. Over the years, many people in the West, they question China's end game in Africa. They're like, why is China in Africa after all? They say China is there not just for economic and financial gains, but uh, China has political and geopolitical ambitions in mind eventually. How do you look at this kind of mentality? Do you think the West is somehow seeing China's role in Africa through their own lenses of uh, exploitation, uh, domination, and of course, previously, colonialism? The colonial powers, of course, uh, are losing ground in Africa, as what we have seen uh, epitomized in West Africa. And uh, to answer the question, those that uh, question the motive of China being in Africa never question the motive of China co Africa cooperation, which started way back at the Bandung Conference in 1955, when Africa was struggling to get out of the yoke of colonialism and apartheid. It is China, together with many South-based countries that supported Africa out of the struggle of uh, colonialism. And of course, China's trade continues to support even in the elimination of apartheid. You remember when that struggle to eliminate apartheid was at its height, uh, many African countries were having sanctions 
like Zambia, Tanzania, which were supporting, which were frontline states. It is China that came and supported those countries. Remember the Tazara Rail that was built from Dar es Salaam to Rusaka was in a way in response to supporting those countries that were fighting against apartheid. And it continues. And because, of course, that relationship, even when you look at China rejoining or joining the, the, the UN Security Council, it is because these countries that supported that move, particularly Africa, was because of those historical relationships. So China has not just discovered Africa or Africa, friendship with China just grown out of this commercial activities going on. It is historical, it is of mutual interest, and it is because they have mutual benefits that arise out of that. Mr. Vice Chairman, I want to ask you about the Belt and Road Initiative because we're marking the 10th anniversary of it later this year. There are many projects in Africa that is a symbol of China-Africa cooperation. If you think about uh, the hydropower station in Uganda and, of course, Chinese firms uh, taking uh, stakes in lithium mines in many African countries. Uh, in Zimbabwe, for example, this lithium plant worth over $300 million dollars and China-Namibia wind power venture of uh, $94 million are happening as we speak. What is your assessment of the Belt and Road Initiative and what concretely has it done to people in Africa? If I could start with the global perspective, over the last 10 years since uh, the Belt and Road Initiative started in 2013, it has been transformative in many ways, particularly for the African continent, focusing in those areas that Africa has lagged behind because if you look at Africa, particularly in the area of infrastructure, every metric, whether you look at people that have access to energy or rail network that is in the continent or road network or ports or airports, all those Africa lags very much behind what you might call the average statistics around the world. And China has supported not only Africa, under this program, over 3,000 projects have been implemented by countries that are members of Belt and Road Initiative or who participate, which are more than 140, 150, plus many international organizations. In fact, if you look at the total investment that has come out of it, out of these programs, over one trillion has been invested. And Africa, if you look at Africa itself, a lot of projects that have been implemented, China now steps more or less ahead of any country, including the World Bank, in supporting infrastructure projects. And infrastructure projects are transformative in many ways because they create, first of all, they create investment opportunities by lowering the cost of doing business, access to markets. They open up some of the areas, like what you mentioned, the lithium, the hydro project in Uganda, plus also where I sit in Kenya, we have the Tazar, I mean, we have uh, the SGR, which has also supported in many ways. If you look at SGR from Mombasa to Nairobi, it has reduced the time of doing business, reduced the number of vehicles on the road, like 500 buses or trucks out of the road per day. Imagine what that means in terms of saving costs, saving lives and also mitigating against climate. 
In addition to all these projects, under the Belt and Road Initiative, you have programs like People to People Cooperation. So many African students studying in China at the moment, uh, and a number of areas in the area of uh, investment cooperation and others. So yes, this cooperation, which has been over the last 10 years, uh, has seen that relationship grow stronger and Africa has benefited a lot. I understand that you are also invited to the Belt and Road Forum to be taking place later this year in Beijing, China. Um, what do you anticipate from this forum? First, I, I, I see a huge participation, uh, but I also see uh, countries renewing their cooperation. But as you mentioned at one stage, there has been quite of concerted effort, particularly from some quarters in the West, to discourage some of the countries you know, working with China. But those countries have maintained the strong relationship because there is, as I said earlier on, mutual benefits. And the countries discover, of course, that some of the programs that are being implemented under the China-Africa cooperation cannot be supported by the West because the West can give soft support, good governance and all these kind of things, but not support heavily in the area of infrastructure. So yes, uh, it will be a celebration marking that cooperation, but also chatting a way forward for the next phase of cooperation. Yeah, Vice Chairman Mwancha, let's talk about BRICS, with South Africa taking the chairmanship of this very important bloc. First of all, what are your expectations from this summit taking place in your own continent, Africa? And also, how do you expect China and Africa, South Africa in particular, to work together to perhaps strengthen the cohesion and unity of this bloc? BRICS really brings what you might call the Global South voice together. And I can't see another voice other than when we used to have the non-aligned movement that speaks louder than uh, the BRICS cooperation. Under BRICS, of course, at the moment, there are six countries that participate. But I can see in the summit that is going to take place in South Africa, in addition to the six countries, uh, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, I see a number of countries wanting to join that cooperation. Already Saudi Arabia, we have seen uh, a number of countries from Middle East that have applied, from Africa, like Egypt and the rest, that would want to join. And this cooperation, of course, opens a new uh, window for countries not only to address issues, which, for instance, are addressed under G7 or under G20, but giving voice to the global South. And in addition to more countries wanting to join, these countries are also looking forward on, on how to strengthen uh, trade and investment. And of course, given the fact that uh, all these sanctions that are there, which have made it very difficult, uh, plus uh, disruptions under global supply chain, uh, these countries will be looking for ways of how to continue to encourage trade and bypass the rigidity that is imposed particularly in payment system that has to go through SWIFT and all these other channels that make it very difficult for countries to trade when there are sanctions. This is going to be a summit that will be watched by the rest of the international community because BRICS is standing up to be a very important forum that speaks on behalf of the Global South. Right. One stated goal of BRICS was to, quote unquote, democratize the post-Cold War international order and make the world fairer. 
for tens of millions of people living in the global south, uh, aka the developing world. Uh, do you see that happening? Yes, of course. If you look at the number of countries that are likely to join and the population already of uh, the BRICS, the BRICS GDP is well over, it's almost 30 trillion, which means it's already over 30% of the global economy. So you cannot ignore that voice. Uh, that uh, comes from the BRICS. In fact, it's over 40% of, of uh, uh, the, the global economy. In addition to that, this is countries that almost constitute two-thirds of the global population. I mean, you look at China, India, and the rest of the countries, plus those that are likely to join. So this is not a forum that uh, one can take uh, lightly. It is a forum that I think is serious on the agenda, and you can see the interest that has uh, been generated as a run-up to the meeting, plus the preparatory meetings that have taken place from India and the rest. But what is your assessment uh, when it comes to uh, you know, perceived uh, disunity within BRICS? For example, China and India are not 100% uh, seen eye to eye with each other. Uh, if you think about the border disputes last year and the year before, member states don't necessarily have the, the, you know, the same working language. Some. Uh, speak English, some speak Chinese, of course, with Russian and uh, other languages to boot. Uh, and of course, they have different geopolitical calculations. There have been calls from Western countries for South Africa, for example, to even arrest um, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. What do you make of all these events and the complex um, you know, dynamics within BRICS? To me, that is epitomizes the kind of global cooperation that we should continue to encourage. It is not often that you will find that countries will agree on all issues and at all times. But when it comes to matters of economic cooperation and serving the interests, for instance, of the global south, these countries do speak with the same voice when it comes to interest of the global south, because they know that global north has its own agenda and has always, even if you look at what institutions that were created under the framework of the global cooperation, whether you call it multilateral cooperation under the UN, these same countries are now walking away from them. They have gone to what one might call nationalism. To me, this brings, brings the best out of countries that may not agree on every item among the agenda, but when it comes to matters of mutual interest, they set aside their differences and stand together. Yeah. Another much-watched event was Russia-Africa summit. What is your take on the outcome of this event? I think that the summit, first of all, a number of agreements were signed. And the fact that in the midst of what is going on between uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine, that uh, a number of countries would still be able to attend that meeting is an indication. Uh, again, Russia has been one of the countries that supported Africa, particularly in the struggle for independence. So much as many of the African countries may not totally agree with what is going on between Russia and the Ukraine, their friendship, their cooperation with Russia has not diminished because of the war. And the fact that you could see the African Union and a number of African leaders in St. Petersburg is a testament to what that relationship stands for. 
Right. Uh, Africa finds itself among the most susceptible regions to bear the brunt of escalating energy and food prices due to geopolitical tensions and the war and the fluctuation in international prices uh, with ongoing Western sanctions impacting Russian oil and gas exports and also the export of Ukrainian agricultural products. How are they responding on the economic front to address the challenges posed by inflationary pressures? In fact, that brings out uh, very clearly when you ask Italian a question about uh, the BRICS. Part of the reason that the BRICS really stands strong together is because of things like sanctions. And the sanctions, the way they are applied, it is really without much of rationality. And here, if you look at what has happened, particularly what you have just clearly articulated, whether it's the war, climate change and the rest, Africa has borne the plant of it. When the global supply chain was disrupted, whether it was because of COVID or this war, Africa had no access to medicine. Africa had no access to food. And because of that, inflation in Africa is really rampant. And because of that, we can see quite an unsettling situation in Africa, which threatens peace and security in the continent. This is one of the things I think African leaders would be looking forward to what comes out of the BRICS, because uh, African countries and even being in St. Petersburg, were, uh, these were some of the issues which were on the table on how this cooperation can continue to take place amidst the wars going on, but also how to go around the sanctions that has made it very difficult for Africa, for instance, to get access to oil, which is also causing inflation in Africa because of high oil prices and, of course, the food prices, plus medicine and the others. And, of course, what we have also seen, what has emerged out of this crisis is countries are now, in the pretext of geopolitics, going into import substitution like we have never seen before. The same countries that established the WTO preached about the need for open trade, global trade, I've walked away from that. And so this is one of the things that uh, really stands out as a, an area of concern for the continent. Yeah, we've seen trends of uh, friends shoring or near shoring. We've seen governments uh, asking their allies and friends and partners to relocate to their friends, uh, you know, uh, countries and continents instead of picking the location that is really the best for their businesses from an economic and uh, business point of view. That is um, pathetic, let's put it bluntly. Let's talk about the situation in Africa. Niger is experiencing uh, some situation over there. The aftermath of the coup d'etat has led the former colony to distance itself from the French influence. We've seen demonstrators in support of the coup, um, some displaying anti-France sentiments and pro-Russian signs on the street. How do you analyze the situation there in Niger? A very complex situation because according to the African Protocol of Peace and Security, any change of uh, leadership that does not follow the constitutional order, the countries then find themselves on the wrong side of the established procedures. Mm -hmm. It's not just at the level of AU, but even at the level of ECOWAS. But as you have rightly mentioned, what has been quite surprising to many people is how popular this coup is among the people of Niger. In spite of the sanctions that have been applied by ECOWAS member states, 
the threats that have been issued, that they would use force to remove the military regime that is in place. This has not uh, uh, in any way deterred the military and the people to soften the stance they have taken. And as you also mentioned, what is the message that is coming out, distancing themselves from France? They, they came out clear on the number of issues that they, they, they raised, which have got to do, say, with uranium, because more than almost 30% of uranium that consumed in Europe is from nature. So this is a message to me, I think, that both the former colonial masters and the, the countries in Africa should really look at and say, what are the lessons learned? And of course, it's not just confined to Niger. You see what has happened in Burkina Faso. You see what has happened uh, in Mali. And all these countries are even ganging up together saying, if there is military intervention in Niger, they will come on the side of Niger. This has complicated the situation in West Africa. Right. Uh, let's talk about climate change, Mr. Vice Chairman, because it's a very important issue and uh, getting more and more so this year. Extreme weather patterns have been observed in here in China, for example, in Beijing, unprecedented record-smashing rainfall in the Chinese capital. Likewise, in Africa, we've witnessed drought in Somalia, flooding in Nigeria, and the cyclone, unfortunately, in Malawi. The impact of climate change are being felt across the continent, and African nations stand out as some of the most vulnerable, susceptible to climate change. Uh, in light of these circumstances and events, how do you envision uh, less developed African countries building resilience and preparedness? Africa remains most vulnerable because the, the items that we have just listed, if you look at the totality of all these elements, uh, it's well known fact that Africa contributes less than 4% of uh, global warming, you know, green gases, but Africa has the highest instance of uh, climate change from drought to floods, but like what we have seen. What is to me surprising is that even some quarters in the world, there are people who are still denying about this climate change, calling it a hoax. Yeah. But when we see the countries that have prepared themselves, for instance, you look at China, the effort that has been made to go to green energy and the rest, uh, is, is, is recommendable. And this is the challenge Africa has because Africa doesn't have enough capital. Africa has also can contribute positively to climate change because Africa is home to a lot of uh, resources, uh, green minerals, but also Africa is also home to uh, forests, uh, you know, which are cup and sink. Uh, and Africa could also turn out to be a solution the global because Africa doesn't have all technologies like what we have. And so, yes, this climate change, Africa, uh, at the moment, of course, the struggle is how to invest in green, greening the economy uh, and, of course, to be able to, to, to mitigate against uh, the impact. But, of course, this is, again, for climate change, is a global issue. And the geopolitics is going to make it very difficult for the global cooperation on this issue. I've seen, for instance, a number of delegations coming to China and others uh, saying, okay, we may not agree on other issues, uh, but let us agree on how we can work together on uh, climate change. And we support that. 
And this is exactly the same thing that we said, even when it comes to what countries like BRICS uh, are doing, that when it comes to issues like, uh, say, climate change or food security or sanctions, the countries will always come together for a solution. Yeah, many think that uh, it is not fair for Africa and our brothers and sisters in Africa to bear the brunt of the climate change, because after all, it is in the industrialized countries, in the developed world, rather, uh, who are contributing to the lion's share of uh, ozone layer polluting and damaging uh, carbon dioxide, which uh, to a large extent resulted in what we're witnessing today, extreme weather patterns, the change of our climate. Uh, there are so many issues I want to get your opinions on. China International Import Expo, or CIIE, is the world's largest national-level import-themed expo. In fact, it is proposed by President Xi Jinping himself, announced by him a couple of years ago. Um, it also features Hongqiao Forum, which is striving to be China's own Davos. Um, what do you anticipate from this year's event to be taking place in Shanghai later this year? I have participated in two of such events before, and the outcome for Africa has been great. And this, of course, shows in numbers, because if you look at trade that is taking place between China and Africa, uh, China, as we mentioned earlier on, is a trading partner of Africa number one uh, for the last uh, 14 years, 15 years, indicating the strength of that cooperation. And of course, events like this make it easy for Africa to access the huge market in China of 1.3 plus uh, billion people, uh, people, but huge economy also because China economy is now almost uh, uh, 20 trillion, uh, whereas Africa, if you look at the totality of Africa, a bigger cities, 1.3 billion people, the GDP is about uh, about 3 point, it's about 3 trillion. But if you look at Africa, it may not be very much visible in terms of the, the, the GDP itself, but Africa has huge resources, and Africa has got potential, particularly uh, in the area of exports, uh, which has always been having a challenge, uh, where those countries, for instance, in agro, they subsidize a lot in the global north. And so this opens uh, cooperation. And I've seen a lot of trade now opening up. I mean, I've seen, for instance, uh, in the recent past, Africans now accessing Chinese market, uh, just like uh, uh, China has also uh, access to African market. Vice Chairman Mwancha, thank you so much for joining us from Nairobi, Kenya. Thank you for your time. I'm coming back again. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Hub. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Bye for now. <laughs>